and welcome to the Talking Children podcast, a podcast for parents, caregivers and educators who want to be empowered with the latest knowledge in the field of children's communication development. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Verdon Pedamont. If you want to support the children in your life to become the best communicators they can possibly be and create this essential foundation for all their future learning, then you're in the right place. So let's get started. Today on the podcast, I have Lysia Flint joining me as a special guest, and we're going to be answering seven most common questions asked about autism. But first, I thought um, we'd get an introduction from Lysia and who she is. So Lysia, can you tell us who you are, um, why you are choosing to become a speech pathologist and what your current research is looking at? Thank you, Sarah. I'm really honoured to be on the podcast today. So thank you for having me. I'm Lucia, I'm a third year speech pathology student at CSU in Albury. And I am studying speech because I actually attended speech pathology when I was younger with a cleft lip and palate. And um, I really found through that experience, there were so many areas that need further support. And I really wanted to be that agent of change and support young people in the ways that I wish I was supported when I was younger. And the healthcare system has progressed so much, even in my experience, and I would love to see it continue to grow. Um, I'm currently doing an honours project. Sarah is one of my supervisors, along with Dr. Laura Hoffman and Miss Tana Cumming. And my project is about parents and caregivers' knowledge, perspective, and attitudes towards early intervention services and access around that. So I thought with this project, I really wanted to know what parents and caregivers do know about early intervention, what level of knowledge do they have, and how we can best support them and empower them to access the services for their children, because they really are the experts in their child's care, and we want to draw that out and honour the role that they have. Wonderful. Thanks, Lou. And it's so interesting to, um, you know, hear about your journey into speech pathology. Last week on the podcast, I was talking with Rich Stevens, who is a stutterer, and we were talking about how important it is to have speech therapists um, who have had the experience on the other side um, of being the client in speech therapy, who understand what it's like and who actually want to make positive change um, for the people who are on the receiving end of our services. So I think that's really valuable. For sure. It makes such a difference when, you know, you're that client and you're being told, like, I was where you are, it's going to be okay, you're going to get through it. It's also very reassuring for our parents and caregivers as well, which is really Yeah, important. absolutely. And to see what, what children can become, um, you know, exactly. that the sky's the limit, really. There's um, nothing you can't do uh, with the right support. Definitely. Great. So today we're going to be having a chat about autism. So thanks for joining me for this Q&A. And you're going to be the grand question asker today and I'll be the question (laughs) question answerer. So take it away with the first question. Our first question, which is one that I've been really thinking about and I've had a few people ask me, so I'd love to hear your answer. So our question is, is autism becoming more common? This is a really frequent question that I get asked or maybe not asked but more so told in a way of this was never around in my day. Why has everyone got autism these days? Mm -hmm. And the truth is that from uh, the research we have, it does appear that autism is more common 
But that's not because it's truly more common, but just because we actually know a lot more about autism now and we are able to identify it. We know so much more about how autism presents. So, you know, many years ago, people had a very stereotyped way of thinking about autism, what it looked like um, and what the features were. So the people who were actually getting a diagnosis were usually people who had a greater severity of symptoms usually boys, as we'll talk about a little bit later, Um, possibly non-speaking were more likely to be diagnosed um, as having autism. But now we know that autism can present in a whole, you know, range of ways, shapes and forms. And so with our greater knowledge of autism and also a greater practice towards early intervention and early assessment for autism, there are a lot more people getting that formal diagnosis, but it doesn't actually mean that autism is more common than it used to be. People have come up with a lot of theories such as, you know, things that we eat or things that are in our environment that are causing autism. And there's not really been any substantial evidence that can prove that Um, any environmental factors are making autism more common. That's not to say that we won't have some research come out in the future, but my understanding is that it's not more common, it's just more well understood and more identified in a more broad variety of ways. That's so interesting that you say that and I think that really speaks to how we as a society are becoming more affirming to everyone, which is really positive. Absolutely. And we're seeing that diversity, um, not necessarily through the lens of disability or disorder, Mm -hmm. but actually um, just seeing there are a whole heap of different types of neurodiversity out there um, Mm -hmm. and that they exist on a spectrum, you know, which makes sense. It's called autism spectrum disorder, but sometimes we tend to see things through a very narrow lens. And so as we open up our understanding of the condition more, we tend to see that more people are diagnosed and also more people are willing to be diagnosed because that's also a big one as well. Either parents or people themselves have often shied away from being diagnosed because of the social stigma around autism. But now that we know a lot more about it, people are finding that getting that diagnosis is sometimes a real key to unlocking their freedom because they Mm -hmm. get the intervention that they need and they get the support and the funding that they need. So I think that's also helping as well. Definitely. And I think with that comes also self-awareness and it's so affirming sometimes to have that diagnosis to acknowledge, oh, that speaks to how I feel. And that's, you know, why I feel that way or I do that certain thing. Yeah, absolutely. Rather than having those negative connotations of what's wrong with me, why do I do this? Actually recognizing, oh, okay, it's because my brain works in a certain way. Absolutely. Definitely. So our next question is, why is autism more prevalent in boys? Another good question. Mm. And this, again, stems back to the research that we have available to us. So in formal studies, it has been found that um, the ratio of boys to girls with autism is around boys being 4.2 times more likely to have autism than girls. But again, this is something that I really question and a lot of people are starting to question. And it's because, again, we're working from this stereotyped historical understanding of autism 
that is typically based around what boys look like with autism. Mm -hmm. And what we know about girls with autism is that they present completely differently. So Mm -hmm. girls tend to be a lot better at masking, which is the term that we use for hiding their symptoms. Girls seem to be very adept at observing the world around them and learning how you're quote unquote supposed to act yeah and copying that so that at school um, and in social situations they tend to slip under the radar and perhaps not be as obviously autistic and so they may tend to be less likely to get diagnosed and what we're finding is that a lot of women are being diagnosed um, later in life so yeah. in their later 20s and and 30s because they're having that moment of self-awareness that you talked about before thinking I've been like this my whole life and no one ever sort of said anything about it and maybe it's because they were still able to get good grades or they didn't have any behavioral issues at school so they've kind of floated under the radar but there's always something that's felt um, you know different about them or that didn't fit with that neurotypical way of seeing Mm -hmm. the world and now um, as we said before it's actually been quite empowering to get that diagnosis and understand um, how their brain works and how they can sort of um, suit their life around how their brain prefers to operate, whether that be around their sensory needs or their routines or whatever it is. And so I don't believe that it really is that more prevalent in boys. I just think it's a perhaps more obvious in what we're looking for in boys because the way that boys can tend to present um, can be that more obvious um, signs of autism, whereas girls may be more subtle there may still be, you know, a higher prevalence in boys, but it's certainly not as pronounced as a lot of the research suggests, I think. I was just wondering as a follow-up question to that, when people are going through the process of diagnosis, a lot of the things that our diagnosing professionals are looking for, whether that be a speech or an OT or a paediatrician, do you think that's based on the norms for how boys with autism present? or autism more generally? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think it certainly depends on the professional and and their viewpoint as well, and also their experience with autism. But I have found a number of people that have come to me that have found it quite difficult to get a diagnosis Mm -hmm. of autism, um, even though to me they seem like a textbook case. Um, Mm -hmm. But perhaps it's just because the things that I'm seeing are perhaps not the things that other people are seeing. And sometimes um, during assessment, people will try to get opinions of other adults in a child's life, such as the teacher. Mm -hmm. And if it's a child who's very good at masking, the teacher may say, oh, they're they're perfectly behaved at school Mm -hmm. or, you know, they're very good at reading or they're very good at maths. And so there's no perceived sort of need there. Yeah. But often where the... um, you know, the autism shows itself is more in the home environment when the child feels they can let that mask down and really show their true selves. And so it can be tricky sometimes to get that diagnosis because the child may not obviously be autistic when they're in front of, a, of another adult that's making that decision. I think that that's such an interesting concept and I love that now in, you know, the healthcare profession, we are growing in our understanding of how people present differently and it is a spectrum and we want to acknowledge and honour everyone individually for who they are. So you touched on this a bit earlier and I would love to know a bit more. What is masking? So masking is, um, as I said, where people pretend, I guess, 
to behave in a way that is neurotypical. And mm-hmm. as I said, we see this, it's in both boys and girls, mm-hmm. um, depending on their personality type and depending on, um, you know, their individual autistic symptoms, but it certainly does present a lot. And um, particularly in people that perhaps haven't even had a diagnosis yet, yeah. it's this sense of feeling like, being in the world is really hard and it takes a lot of effort to participate in the things that come quite naturally to other people, like social interactions, even just being in the classroom and having to interact in those sort of settings. Um, It takes a lot of effort to act in the way that is socially expected rather than in the preferred way because the world is set up for neurotypical people, not for neurodiverse people. And so masking is where it's almost mimicking what it's like to be neurotypical, even though that might not be a person's preferred way of interacting in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing I was going to say um, about when you asked about the diagnosis was what I've really, really noticed um, in my profession is how um, how much tenacity parents have to have sometimes to get that diagnosis. I've noticed parents really taking the lead in doing a whole heap of research and really having to advocate for their child because perhaps that diagnosis isn't forthcoming or perhaps people when they're in a clinical setting aren't seeing what the parent's seeing at home. And so it's really important that parents um, have that knowledge and skills around child development and language development and social development so they can say, you know, this is what my child is doing. I don't believe, um, you know, this is what my their siblings did or you know because parents have a lot of ideas especially when they have multiple children and it really links back to what you're doing in your research Lucia about investigating what parents do and don't know about typical development because that will help them in their advocacy if they can really point out these specific things uh, that are happening with their child it can really help that diagnostic process. Definitely and I think parents and caregivers really are the biggest advocate in this process you know they know their child best they're there with them every day rather than a professional who's with them for an hour in an assessment setting so yes they definitely are taking the lead and it's really lovely to see parents be so invested in their child's care and to really advocate for what their child needs which is really good yeah absolutely and I think um it can be really disheartening for parents when, you know, they might wait six months for this appointment to go and see a specialist. The specialist sees their child for an hour. And sometimes, you know, often kids on the spectrum or any kids can really sort of freeze up when they're around a strange adult. And so they're not really seeing what the parent's seeing at home. So it's really important for parents to feel that they know, you know, how to advocate and what things to report to professionals so that they're getting the results that they need. Definitely. Our next question, what is regression in autism, which is another key word that I'd love to know a bit more about. Uh, This is a really good question, Lou. So regression is what happens when a child appears to be um, typically developing, so meeting all their expected milestones, Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden they stop developing or they tend to sort of go backwards in their skills. 
And it's actually really, really common in autism. In fact, um, research shows around 32% of kids on the spectrum experience a skill loss or a regression. And um, it's typically a loss in language and social skills, not so much a loss in motor development, like the ability Mm -hmm. to walk or crawl or anything like that. Interestingly, this is where one of the biggest myths around autism comes from. Yeah, because a lot of people you'll hear say, or it has been said, oh, my child developed autism when they got their measles, mumps and rubella needle. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason that the correlation between these two things has kind of come about is because the average age of regression is around sort of 20 months so one and a half years of age and that is around the same age that children get their measles mumps and rebellion Uh, mm -hmm. so this is a complete myth it has been debunked by study after study we know that that vaccine doesn't cause autism but people have tend to say my child was typically developing they were meeting all their milestones they were starting to talk we went and got their immunization and now they've completely regressed and of course that makes complete sense because that is the timeline of events but what it's led to is people blaming you know that vaccine for autism Mm -hmm. when actually it just happens to be a coincidence that those two events tend to occur around the same age in the child so we do know that regression is really common um, and it can be either gradual so a kind of slow regression or it can be quite acute where a child just sort of seems to regress very very quickly Um, and there's not really a lot of um, understanding of why it happens Mm -hmm. Um, but what we do know is that children who experience regression do tend to um, get a diagnosis of more severe autism. It's one of those areas where it can be really disheartening at times and it's hard when there's not as much evidence as we would like around that area but I think that that's definitely something that will continue to grow in the future and to answer more of our questions and develop our understanding further. Yeah, absolutely. And it can be a lot more difficult for parents to accept a diagnosis of autism when they've experienced regression because they have seen their child um, developing typically and then all of a sudden there's been this quite big shift um, whereas children who present as autistic from birth mm-hmm. it's kind of a different journey so yeah, yeah yeah I think that really aligns with the idea of everyone presents different differently sorry and it is such a spectrum and everyone has a different journey of diagnosis and from that we can't assume as you know clinicians that we know everyone immediately based on what we've learned or based on the textbook and yeah really looking at everyone individually just when you think you know everything about a topic you realize you don't really know everything at all exactly (laughs) that's a good thing it makes us keep learning it does and it's really a process of learning with the family because like you're sort of partnered up and going through it together which is really affirming to for both ends Absolutely. And with um, things like autism, children are often in speech therapy or other kinds of therapy like OT for a really long time. They often don't get discharged. They'll have a lifelong relationship with their Mm -hmm. therapist. So it's so important to have that trust and mutual understanding with the person that you're working with, because otherwise you're not going to sort of let them into your life and and become part of, um, you know, your journey with that child. So the relationship when you have these longstanding, um, you know, therapies is really important. 
Definitely. Now, our next question, what is stimming and should we discourage children from stimming? Excellent question. So stimming is um, a term that means self-stimulatory behaviour. And what that looks like is that often kids with um, autism or adults with autism have what they call stim. So it might be flicking their fingers, it might be jerking their head, it might be a vocal tick where they make a noise, um, it might be tapping their leg or their toes, all sorts of different um, stims that a child can do. And there are Another uh, really common one in um, autism is flapping their hands and that yes. often indicates excitement. So two really important things to know about stimming. First of all, a lot of people traditionally in traditional autism therapy have worked to eliminate stimming. Um, and this can have a really negative impact upon people with autism. And that's because stimming is a form of communication in the first mm -hmm. instance. So often it, it is expressing joy or emotion in some way um, in relation, particularly for people who um, are non-speaking autistic. So if they don't necessarily have that verbal communication to rely on, they may um, show their enjoyment or their experience of an event through their body and through stimming. So often it communicates to people, um, you know, to loved ones or caregivers, whether that person's enjoying a certain activity or how they're feeling about it. So having someone stop stimming is actually quite de detrimental because it's cutting off a form yeah. of communication. Um, and the other uh, thing is that often people stim when they're anxious or when they're concentrating. Mm -hmm. And so it can be either a way to manage anxiety through stimming or just a way of helping people to focus. So um, I've heard reports of people saying, you know, when I'm trying to learn something or when I'm in a classroom or I tend to be stimming as I'm concentrating. And sometimes I've seen this a lot of classrooms, they really focus on often what they call the five L's of listening. Oh, um, yes. You know, keep your legs still, keep your lips still, keep your hands in your lap looking and listening. And I understand why from a classroom management point of view, people use that technique, mm -hmm. but it's not very neurodiversity affirm affirming because when a child who stims has to put all of their energy into keeping their legs and arms still, often the only thing that they can think about is I need to keep my legs and arms still. And they're not actually absorbing any of the yeah. lesson that's going on in front of them. Whereas if they were perhaps able to rock or move or, you know, wiggle their fingers or play with a fidget toy or whatever it was, they might actually absorb everything that was in the lesson. So it comes down to figuring out what's going to work best for this child and is it the most important thing that they keep their legs and arms still or is it the most important thing that they absorb what they're learning in a way that's comfortable and in a way that works best for their brain? Definitely. And I think with that, we really, again, are really growing in the idea that we want to honour the needs of everybody, neurodiverse, affirming, and we want to make sure they can do whatever they need to do to support their learning best. And sometimes, yeah, it is better to forfeit, you know, sitting with a lovely posture to <laughs> be able to actually engage in the lesson. And I think that that's really good that we're moving forward in the way that we honour 
what everyone's needs are, which is really good. Absolutely. And I think that is a real hangover from those more traditional therapies where the aim of therapy for autistic people was to make them not autistic anymore. Mm -hmm. And now that we've realised, A, that's not possible, and B, we don't actually want to do that, Mm -hmm. the reason people wanted autistic kids or autistic people to stop stimming is because it looked different Mm -hmm. and so they didn't like that stereotyped behavior or their child looking different Um, and what we really actually need to do is just make society a whole heap more accepting of the fact that Mm -hmm. some people need to move their body in order to concentrate or to show enjoyment and that that's okay yeah and I think I really hope deeply that as a society we're moving towards honouring all kinds of communication and not just communication being verbal because behaviour, gesture, sign, being bilingual, all forms of communication are, you know, acceptable and they should be accepted in our society. Absolutely. Completely agree. So our next question, why does my autistic child correct me all the time? This is a good one. And this is one that we really see a lot with um, people who are what they call level one autistic, what used to be called Asperger's. Mm -hmm. And where this can come from is that autistic people are very um, good at understanding facts and, and literal thinking in many ways. And so this is one where it actually reveals how strangely neurotypicals communicate because we tend to say the wrong thing all the time and we just accept so if our watch says 9 32 we say it's half past nine but it's not half past nine so often you know an autistic person will say no it's 9 32 and they're completely correct why did we take two minutes off the time did it take any longer to say half past nine than 9 32 why do we do that it's just something that neurotypicals do we round down we estimate um i'll say you know the other day I went down to the shop and this happened and my autistic child might say you did that on Tuesday it's like yes I did do it on Tuesday you know so just being more specific being clearer being with the facts but we tend to speak in more abstract language and that often doesn't make sense and so in this instance it's not actually the autistic person saying something unusual it's neurotypical people in the way that we use hyperbole and exaggeration and um and estimations to speak and often what we say is not factually accurate you know so you might say oh it's 100 degrees outside and I might say no it's 36 degrees so (laughs) it feels the same yeah (laughs) so it's just about you know speaking in facts and um you know, just being honest and, and factual in their communication in a way that often neurotypicals aren't, which must be very, very frustrating when you're learning to communicate and everyone keeps saying the wrong thing around you. <laughs> I It would be very frustrating. And I definitely have conversations sometimes with people when they say something wrong and I'm like, oh, and you like go to correct them. And you're like, but I won't, I won't. I'll just leave that. Yeah. I'll just, we'll just let that one lie. Yeah. And so um, it's, it's something that is quite challenging because it can make someone come across as being rude mm-hmm. when they're actually not being rude, they're just being honest. So, yeah. <laughs> again, that's about, you know, the, the acceptance of different ways of communicating and, and us having a bit more understanding. Definitely. You touched on this earlier and I'd just love to ask you a bit more about it. When you said earlier um, level one autism used to be called Asperger's, 
can you talk to me a bit more about what that means? Yeah, absolutely. So in the DSM-5, which is the latest um, diagnostics to statistical manual of how we classify different um, disorders. So in the DSM-4, there used to be different categories of autism. So there was autism, there was Asperger's, um, and there was also something called PDD-NOS, which was pervasive de- developmental delay not otherwise specified. Wow. Basically what they did in the DSM-5 is they said all of this is autism. We're just going to call it all autism, but we'll have different levels. And the levels are according to how much support a person needs. So level one autism is what we used to associate with Asperger's syndrome. Um, And it's people who have, you know, very good language, usually very high intelligence, perhaps only need minimal support to get through their day. Then you have level two, which requires, um, you know, a lot more support. Um, and might have a whole heap of different um, autistic characteristics. And then you have level three, which needs um, quite a lot of support. So that might be people who are non-speaking or have, um, you know, quite a range of other um, features of autism that make it difficult for them to get through their life without support. Definitely. Now, this question, I definitely toss around these two words, so I'd love to know, (laughs) what is the difference between a meltdown and a tantrum? Oh, what a wonderful question, Lou. So a meltdown is uh, a real experience that happens to autistic people when they come become completely overwhelmed by something now sometimes it's a sensory overwhelm sometimes it's a change in schedule sometimes it's an inability to understand what's going on in the world around them but it is a legitimate response to something that is happening a tantrum on the other hand is something that a toddler does when they don't get their own way and so (laughs) The reason that it matters to talk about these things is because often the two are conflated Mm -hmm. and people will see an autistic person having a meltdown, particularly an autistic child, and say, what a naughty child, or Mm -hmm. that child just needs better discipline, when that's actually not the case at all. This Mm -hmm. is often happening because there might be too many noises in the room, there might be something really unfamiliar happening to the child, or there might be unfamiliar people around the child. And it also happens in adults as well. I'm just talking about children, because Mm -hmm. that's what we talk about here in the podcast, but it does certainly happen to adults as well. Mm -hmm. It's a complete um, sort of meltdown of functioning in response to a stimulus or a number of stimuli that are completely overwhelming the person. Um, and often it is it renders a person unable to communicate what's going on with them. So they might be in this complete state of overwhelm, but they can't articulate to you the noises are too loud or this is a change to the way that we normally go to school. Or, you know, so because the their... Um, nervous system is in complete fight or flight meltdown at this point so they can't be rationally talking you through what's going on and so it can be really really difficult for parents or teachers to sometimes know how to deal with it and the way that I deal with um, meltdowns in my experience is just to make the, the person feel safe so let them feel safe let them feel the feelings because it will pass um, and let them know that they're safe and that you're there for them 
if you can figure out what's caused it, try to reassure them that it's going to be okay, but mostly just making them feel safe until that can pass. Yelling at them, sending them to their room, smacking them, not going to help. This person is not being naughty. Um, They're not doing it to manipulate you or to get their own way. They're actually really out of control of their body at that time and they need um, support and affirmation. I think it really goes back to the idea of um, once you've flipped your lip, you you need time to reset and to feel okay and you know, when someone's yelling at you when you're having a hard time, that's definitely not going to help the situation. So just supporting where you can and helping someone to feel safe is absolutely the most important thing. Look, it can be really, really difficult. And that is why often families, um, you know, who have autistic people in them don't deviate their schedule or they don't make last minute changes mm-hmm. because they don't want to... Um, completely disorient the person that they have in their family because it can be very very difficult sometimes you could be going about your day you know getting ready for school is the big one people have so much pressure in the morning mum dad have to get to work kids have to get to school everyone has to get dressed and brush their teeth and eat their breakfast there are so many things that could go wrong in that routine and so the smallest thing could be the trigger for a meltdown Mm -hmm. and sometimes parents don't actually know what it was that triggered it they might think oh we've done everything the same as every other day or maybe the favorite pair of socks aren't clean or maybe grandma has to drop you at school today because I have to start work early it could be any small change to the routine and it's really really challenging to deal with for everyone involved including the autistic person because no one wants to see that meltdown happen it's very very sad to see someone in that much distress so it can be really challenging for everyone involved to try and minimize that meltdown and sometimes parents do receive a lot of judgment for that because it's seen as you know pandering to the child and giving them what they want but I think that's a real misunderstanding of the difference between a meltdown and a tantrum you know we've all seen a tantrum at the lolly aisle when a child (laughs) wants a chocolate we get it um and you know, we've all probably thrown tantrums ourselves and we haven't got in our own way, but it's a, fundamentally, yeah, it's a fundamentally different thing to have a meltdown. It's a genuine, um, you know, reaction of the, of the nervous system um, to a really threatening stimuli. It is perceived as a threat, whatever it is, the sensory overload or, or the change in routine or having to be exposed to something unfamiliar or something that you don't like. Definitely. you given me so much information I'm sure you've given our listeners so much information I would just like to ask you one more question (laughs) even though everything you've said today is extremely valuable and I've been hanging on to every word what is one key message that you wish everybody in society knew about autism If I could say one thing about autism is I wish that we could say, take the word disorder off the Mm -hmm. term autism spectrum disorder. I really think we need to reframe the way that we think about autism. Mm -hmm. Um, Autism certainly can come with a number of challenges because as I said, 
people with autism are trying to live in a neurotypical world that doesn't always meet their needs. But there are so many wonderful things about people with autism that we can learn. And they have so many strengths and um, so much value to our society and value as people that if, I think if we can all try to adjust our own perceptions and our own expectations of, of what behaviour, quote unquote, should look like, of what communication quote unquote, should look like, yeah. we can actually see that diversity at play and really um, benefit from that. That's such a lovely message. And I think it's so true. We've, we've got to change that one. Yeah. Thanks, Lou. And thanks so Thank much you. for being on the podcast. You've been a wonderful co-host today. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Talking Children podcast. For links to any research cited in the podcast, go to our show notes at svp-slp.com. The link is in the description for the episode. Don't forget to subscribe so that each new episode will drop into your podcast app. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, please share it with your family and friends and follow us on Facebook and Instagram to receive all the latest information about each episode and interesting tidbits of research that might help to support the children in your life. You can also help others to find out about the show by leaving a five-star review in your podcast app. Have a great week and enjoy all of the precious conversations that you have with the children in your life.